gentlemen, we are now starting our next panel, the new age of influencer content here at the Advanced Advertising Pavilion. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce Damian Navarro, who's the president of Vimby. And he's going to um, share some wonderful insights about influencer content. The most connected man in Los Angeles, ladies and gentlemen, Damian Navarro. Let's have an Advanced Advertising Pavilion I'll hand for I'll Damian. I'll take that any day. Well, welcome, everybody. I'm hopefully uh, you have uh, a great time with uh, this amazing panel that we were able to cultivate. So without further ado, let me just bring them up and then we'll uh, we'll jump into it. Um, so first off, we've got Adam Reno, our chief creative officer at Vimby. You're not sitting there. Yeah, he sits next to me all the time. Michelle Kempner, VP of operations for BuzzFeed and Jonathan Scogbo, our CEO of Jukin. Welcome, everyone. Mic check. We're good. Thank you for having us. There we go. Feels good. All right. All right. Good. Check, check. So um, I'm just going to kind of jump into it before I, I turn it over to these guys. Obviously, influencer content is, uh, is, is playing a significant point in all of our lives. Uh, I'm sure all of you saw that recent Pepsi commercial, right? Amazing. But um, also a, a good example of when you're using influencers, you want to make sure that when they represent a movement or a cause, that it kind of resonates with something they're probably doing in their authentic daily lives. Um, obviously, with the president election, uh, when we look at just how influential um, these brand ambassadors and people that are responsible for uh, supporting and leading us can play such a critical role uh, in the platforms we provide them. Um, and then also uh, a couple other areas that I think we're going to want to be touching on is the entertainment and how much these influencers now are being cultivated directly into film and television. Um, I was just recently watching the trailer for The Thinning on uh, YouTube Red. Um, in which you have two huge YouTube stars that are now getting into scripted features. So there's a huge blurring of what exactly influencer content is. Um, to kind of kick us off, though, uh, I'd like to just kind of go through each of our panelists, starting with Michelle, and talk about what, what are you in the business of? So at BuzzFeed, I would say we're in the business of making shareable content. Uh, everything we do is really obsessed with our audience and a front line and really making content that, that can move through the ecosystem. Jonathan? Um, at Duke and Media, my name is Jonathan Skogmo, founder and CEO. Um, we believe uh, the future of storytelling is user-generated. And with the proliferation of mobile devices, a lot of really cool cameras and drones that you see here, everybody's a content creator. And so we curate and discover and acquire some of the best videos um, that happen to be on the web. And then we reprogram -re them, license them to traditional media companies, digital media, media companies, and we produce long-form content as well. Hey, guys. Um I'm Adam from Vimby. Probably not as many of you have heard of Vimby as BuzzFeed. Um, that's all right. Uh, but what we do is we're a content marketing studio that uh, is really known for connecting brands to culture and communities all over the country. And so we take great pride in being embedded in over 80 cities in, in America alone. And our content creators and our influencers are very much of the communities that they live in. Uh, and so we'll talk about what we think that means. But... Um, most of what we do is in the real person sort of sincerity marketing space. So I think an important, I'd love to just start writing with the panel. I think it used to be that influencers were naturally celebrities first. 
And, you know, we would go out and, you know, whether it was the, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the company, The Audience. You know, we kind of find out these celebrities, we rent their time, we rent their feeds, we rent their audiences um, in order to kind of push, you know, brand messaging out. And, uh, and then we also have, of course, companies like Fullscreen that have done um, a complete kind of management role when it comes to influencers and how they work with them, the platforms, the tech platforms that they, they provide them in order for them to be better better kind of movers in their in their specific space um, but I think what's really interesting now and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put Michelle on the spot is um, there's companies like BuzzFeed that I believe are actually growing and curating uh, and and creating the influencers themselves um, and there's there's never been such a blur between I see uh, in so many BuzzFeed videos um, your audio guy is now also your tastemaker or your 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 trendsetter for specific types of content. Um, how did that come about? Was it organic? Did you know as 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 you guys started to understand kind of what people were really wanting to see? I know authenticity plays such a key role in everything you do. Um, where does that begin? So Jonah, our CEO, likes to say that we, uh, we hire people who develop crushes on content. So we like to make a, a culture that's, that's really around supporting our content creators in those crushes. Uh, one, of our, one of our really successful um, shows right now is a show, Worth It, that's on YouTube where we have, um, we have these two characters. Uh, Steven and Andrew and their sound guy and they try a low cost a medium cost and a high cost version of a food item at a you know at restaurants and um, the really fun part about and I'm, I'm gonna sh show the trailer maybe <laughs> later but um, the really fun part about it is Steven had this idea for this content started making it and has now become a major food influencer he recently interviewed Mario Batali live at our offices. Uh, there's a star-studded celebrity chef cast in this season. But I don't want to give anything away. But the funny part about it is his uh, co-star, Andrew, and the sound, the sound guy, Adam, are actually the hands in our original Tasty videos. They concepted, created, did the whole thing for a lot of our early Tasty successes. And when we had our first option to, um, our first opportunity to make a video with President Obama, Andrew was the person that we sent, and he's in a video with Obama. But they're all, they're the same people. Every everyone there knows how to shoot. They know how to edit, and they they create the content. And their uh, influencer status actually emerges from their relationship to the audience. And Adam, I'm going to throw something to you too. I mean, Vimby started as a publisher. Um, how has that, and kind of, uh, I would say, in that Vivo Vice world, right, of, of early on kind of short docu-series pieces of content, um, how has that impacted Vimby as they've moved into um, kind of these embedded filmmakers and what, what maybe you can explain a little bit about what Vimby Nation is? Yeah, absolutely. So the Vimby Nation is the term that we use for our creator network, um, our filmmaker network. And uh, as Damien alluded to, we actually launched 10 years ago as a publisher. We were devoted to millennial lifestyle and culture, action sports, street art, fashion, all of that stuff. And we really felt that the only way to authentically tell these stories was to find filmmakers who were embedded in these communities. Um, you know, it, you can't you can't tell a street art story effectively by sending someone into a very guarded community, an exceptionally guarded community who's not trusted. 
because the subjects aren't going to open up to that person. And so when we started building out our filmmaker network, uh, which we still use today, it was important that they knew how to shoot. It was important that they knew how to edit, that they knew how to tell a story. But it was every bit as important that they were authentic to the communities that they would be covering. That was really, really huge. Um, now, we moved away from the publisher model uh, because at the time, that, I mean, this is 2007, and it was very difficult to sustain that. And what started happening was all these brands, these youth brands like Puma, New Era, Nike, Toyota, and Scion, we would go to them and say, hey, do you want to advertise on our distribution outlet? And they were like, nope, <laughs> but we like your content. Do you want to start making content for our outlets? Which now, of course, we all that makes perfect sense to us. But in 2007, it was very nascent. Um, and so even today, the legacy of that, I think, is that our filmmakers are very much members of the communities that they're covering. And that's so critical. I mean, I think to answer your question about, about influencers, um, certainly at Vimby, we don't feel like influencers have to be celebrities. Uh, most of our filmmakers are not celebrities, um, and, and most of our subjects are not celebrities. Um, but we, I mentioned sincerity marketing earlier. We really, um, we really believe that, and I think studies are proving out in content marketing that while the celebrity following can give you a big splash, obviously, from a brand perspective, from an engagement perspective, from a vanity measurement perspective, it can be critical. Um, when you look at actually connecting and, and having conversion, it's the subject matter experts that really move people. So a mom in Topeka is much more likely to convert or respond to a piece of content if the person speaking to her is a mom in a place like Topeka. Uh, and that's really our mantra. And, and it all stems back to those very, very early days when we're like, hey, if we're gonna speak to graffiti artists, let's go get a graffiti artist to shoot it. And now it's just, you know, mom's talking about Huggies, but it's the same general concept. And John, when you're looking, is there is there kind of a litmus test for when you're when you're out there curating content or looking for the next thing, the next talent, the next influencer? Um, what are some of the things that you're looking for that might have been different, say, five years ago in the space? Well, as you can, uh, we look at influencers much differently, I think, than traditionally how you would look at influencers as far as talent. Here's the mic. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, we look at influencers differently um, as other companies may look at them, traditionally bringing up talent, talent that huge followings. I think for us, we're finding these really great videos, these really great gems. I think 400 hours of content is being uploaded every single minute on YouTube, and we build some really great technology that help us kind of filter down to a set of metrics that we're looking at that we, that we know that's going to either share, um, have engagement, have increased viewership in a certain amount of time period. So the influencers that we look at are video. I'll think of uh, maybe some of you guys have seen this in the audience. There's a video called Chewbacca Mom that came out last year. It had 150 million views in less than a week. And she became an overnight sensation. She appeared on every morning show, every talk show. Um, I can't comment on how much money she's made, but she's made up well into the six figures. So it's like finding those gems. And even before that, we even go back a year further, was a video called Pizza Rat. So all of a sudden, the Pizza Rat becomes a meme, becomes a Halloween costume. Um, it, it's kind of crazy how we find the, these videos and what they become overnight. So we look at influencers much differently as it's kind of natural talent, homegrown talent that just pops up overnight. 
and Michelle, for 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 BuzzFeed, I mean, you know, how do you how do you what kind of leverage do you give these these storytellers to tell the stories they want to tell? Is there a top down kind of editorial in chief model where you know these are the things we want to cover, these are the things that we know are popular? Let's do a keyword search, let's do a, you know traffic search, and, and see what's popular. Um, or do you give them the, how much autonomy do these filmmakers have to create the kind of things that they want? So at BuzzFeed, we do everything possible to facilitate our content creator's connection to the audience. So uh, a big part of my role is putting everything in place to get the uh, Stephen Lim, who makes Worth It, or you know uh, Ashley Perez, one of our, our talent um, development partners, all the materials they need to make content that will work. So to answer your question, it's not top-down at all. It's a very supportive environment where we provide data, we provide dashboards, interfaces, learnings, and then, like I said, our content creators, anything they need to, to develop their crushes on content, and then they can pursue um, whatever direction that might lead to. And then over to Adam, you, I would say that these are kind of like the hidden influencers right now, the, the way that you described it, these filmmakers, these embedded filmmakers. Um, what does the beginning of a relationship look like when you're giving so much power essentially over to these people? And many times, you know, uh, the brands are pretty hands off about the content that they ended up coming back with and the stories that they're telling. Yeah. Does, oh, hey, it does work. Okay. Um, absolutely. So, uh, one of the biggest challenges that Vimby has when we first begin a relationship with a brand is. They're really excited by the idea of being able to reach into these communities, having this sort of decentralized network. But if you're working with creative, I don't know if anyone out there has to work with creative directors or ECDs at agencies or anything like that, but they are like, how can you guarantee that the brand is going to be protected? Like, is this the wild, wild west? How, how can you guarantee me that there's going to be a uniformity and it's going to meet the brief and all of this stuff? And I think the way that we do that is by consistently working with the same content creators. So um, there are a lot of companies that are very successful who have a very massive content creator network, you know, and they're proud of it and they should be. They have thousands of content creators. We're very proud of the fact that we don't. We have a very exclusive vetted group that have been trained to a standard in practice. Uh, I like to say we're a first name basis company. Um, you know, we know our filmmakers exceptionally well. They hear from us on their birthday. They hear from us when they have a kid. And that's important. Uh, and, and we spend a lot of time training them to a Vimby standard. We fly them into Los Angeles for, for workshops. We have regular seminars, regular sort of two-way conversation. Um, because it's so, it's so, so critical that we guarantee that they're going to deliver on what we say, especially because a lot of what we do is a brand will buy off on 20 videos shot in 20 different markets, even globally, and they want it to look and feel as if it has one voice. Um, so it can't, it can't just be that we put, we entirely imbue our, our, our content creators with that much trust. I think I see one of our content creators filming me right now. Hey, Juliana, um, from, from Denver. Uh, so that's a great example. Juliana's been working uh, with us for, um, uh, have you been here the whole time? She's walked up. Um, so that's a first name basis company. Um, but uh, but uh, Juliana's probably been working with us for five to six years. She's she's told some amazing passion projects of her own. Um, 
did a great piece on slacklining in the Rockies, which is one of my favorite Vimby pieces of all time. But she's also shot some some pretty retail-focused Walmart commercials. And so you have to be able to do both things. Um, sometimes we go to them and we say, please, we want you to pitch us stories. We want you to tell us stories. We want you guys to really be the, the stage one of the content creation. Um, and then sometimes we have to go to them and say, okay, there's some rules. There's a sandbox you have to play in on this one. Um, and I think that, and she may correct me, but I think that the reason they're so willing to play in the sandbox on the Walmart commercial is because we gave them the freedom to tell the slacklining story that they were very passionate about. And so, so in terms of how we start relationships with filmmakers, a lot of times we'll We'll allow them to pitch us an original story, a couple original stories. We'll go through that process, not funded by a brand. We, we, we view it as an R&D cost. Now, we do own all that content, and we sometimes syndicate it. But, um, <coughs> but for us, that's really how we meet our filmmakers. We want to we start with a passion project. We want to just see if we like each other. Um, and then if it works out, you know, um, then, uh, then we'll start to let them work on our branded projects. Michelle. So as you guys were going through and obviously building up um, this kind of incredible model, how, how many filmmakers do you guys have now? Are you allowed to, are you allowed to say just in L.A. and New York alone? I would just be hard to answer. I'd say because um, everyone can create content at BuzzFeed. Ah, cool. Uh, I'm, I'm over BuzzFeed. So we're, divi- we're uh, organized with news and entertainment. And the entertainment in gr- group includes the people who make the posts like, you know, the dissection of the Pepsi ad, like you mentioned. We have um, Matt Stapera, who's, like, famous for his posts. And then we have the quizzes, which people are probably familiar with. And then, and then the content creators who make videos. And then one thing we do is we move content between all of those formats. So one of our highest performing Facebook videos is actually a video of a quiz that somebody did on the site that's like the cube where you describe a cube in your head and then you find out what person you, what kind of person you are or like how many kids you want and um, so it's very hard to distinguish and say like oh we have X number of this people and X number of that people and even like uh, Matt Stapera had this big story where his iPhone uh, got stolen and it was found in China and then he connected with the person in China who had his phone and then we sent a film crew for their meeting in China and like that's a documentary that's a a feature film so everything blends and adapts across all the different formats it sounds like for for all three of you and I kind of leave this open how how much are happy accidents playing into like everyday lives of just kind of having a nose for what to follow and what to you know uh, obviously, you can look at data, you can look at dashboards, you can look at reports, and what worked last time didn't work last time. H- how do you allow that kind of risk-taking? How do you build that into the culture and the fabric of, of, of everything that you guys are doing? Well, de-risking failure is a, a huge tenet of working at BuzzFeed, and it's really fun seeing these happy accidents. It has a lot to do with just making data available and focusing on your successes rather than your failures, because there's no point in following up on a failure, follow up on a success. So one of my favorite stories is somebody on the Tasty team took a break from making recipe videos and decided to make a DIY marbled mug just like a quick video of a hobby thing she wanted to do. We put it up on a small Facebook page and it got like 2 million shares. We, me- we measure success in shares on Facebook rather than views. So it got like 2 million shares right away. 
So we said, well, it looks like this should be a thing. And three weeks later, we launched Nifty, which now has maybe, I don't even want to guess, it's, it's pretty big, <laughs> uh, maybe like 15 million page likes on Facebook uh, in about 15 months. Um, so it's just following up on those, when you see a spark, when you see, we call it signal, when you see a signal, put energy there and resources and see what comes out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very much. Um, and by the way, I love the term like a crush on content. We're going to steal that because I think that's very. I mean, that's that's absolutely never heard it put that way. I mean, that's absolutely how we um, how we look at things as well. But it's very much part of our culture that we be fast to fail. Um, we're not making $500,000 videos very often. And so it's important to always be exploring, always be experimenting. And, and we do have an element of Vimby, uh, as much as I wax poetic about the heart, we do have an element of Vimby that is analytics-based. And so um, so we'll just put something out there and see if it works. And, to, and you know, to your point, we'll sort of kill the losers and then and then you know go with the winners. But um, but that's, that's a huge part of, of what we do is just trying something. And sometimes it, it doesn't work. But but it is interesting when I talked about how there's this element of Vimby that we're always just curating documentary stories for our own edification, just for no other reason other than we like the world and we like to tell stories and we're interested in people. Um, Several years ago, many years ago, some of our filmmakers started pitching us uh, on doing these stories on hackerspaces and makerspaces, which in 2009, 2010, a lot of people weren't familiar with the, the maker movement and the hackerspace movement. It was sort of pretty early stage in America. I had never heard of it. And it's kind of hard to get these people to trust you, rightfully so. But a lot of our filmmakers who were themselves hackers pitched us these documentaries. We paid for a series of, I think, five documentaries on the maker movement in 2010. And we're like, well, that's just some money. And those are some videos. And they go on a shelf. And then two years later, Scion came to us and they wanted um, something different. They didn't want to do another series with DJs or, you know, artists or b-boys or whatever they're like we want to do something on people who are really taking on the machine now if we had just called random hacker spaces you're shaking your head as if you probably know this community or this culture pretty well if we had if we had just called random hacker spaces and said we want you to be in a scion spot we would have gotten a big huge fu probably in like led robotic characters uh, outside of our, our building but because they knew us and they trusted us we'd been there before we called them and said hey guys we really want to hold you up and celebrate you and because we have to keep our lights on, a brand's going to pay for it. Um, and we did this really cool competition reality series called Take on the Machine with Scion, all about the maker. Um, and again, it was all because we had established sort of those those relationships through what I would call, maybe not an accident, but certainly something that wasn't done with any kind of intention or um, any sort of like agenda. It was just something we did passionately. And then two years later, we launched an even much, 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 much larger project with Intel called America's Greatest Makers. And it was still all part of that lineage that began just because one of our filmmakers was like, no, this, this, this shit's really cool. Please, can I do a video? I think for us um, at Jukin, we have a really simple philosophy where we really believe in an MVP. Um, if you guys are familiar with that, uh, minimum viable product in everything that we do, whether we're building technology, whether we're producing video, whether we're programming that video, it's we, we, we put it out there, we fail fast, we learn, we iterate. And we do that over and over and over again. We learn from our mistakes, we learn from our failures, and we do it fast. 
You mentioned technology. Um, you know, I think uh, other other than Vimby, I think the two of you very much have a, a firm foot in in the platforms that you guys have cultivated and created. The ability to distribute this communication, the ability to own that data. Um, was that something that was kind of thought from the very beginning, or has it just become more critical that you guys kind of have your hands on that from the, from as time has gone on, and you've seen a lot of these platforms uh, kind of putting up barriers to the type of data that we can receive of where this content goes? Yeah, it, it's a part of BuzzFeed from the beginning. We're a technology company where I actually started at BuzzFeed as a technologist, and my task was to build out a dashboard for the content creators so that they could just see very easily as we were getting started into the world of distributed because it's much more complex to find all your data. And then that naturally led, in my quest to get the data in front of the creators, it naturally led to my expanded role uh, because it's so core to everything that we do. And we've now really advanced. It was only three years ago where we uh, collect as much stats as possible. Like anything we can get from a platform, we collect. And then we use uh, we use software called Looker to help you give a, a clear, easy UI and different dashboards customized to different teams. And we do a lot of just helping the team. Uh, how do you interpret this data? How do you find? And one thing that we do is we try to, um, while all of the data, there's so much data available, so we help cut through the noise. Uh, for example, I, I mentioned earlier that we focus on shares on Facebook. The reason that we do that is you don't want to get caught in the world of trying to uh, reverse engineer a black box algorithm, which is so tempting to do. And as soon as you think you figured it out, you know Facebook can change it. So instead, what we do is we focus on a simple metric like shares, which requires a user action, so that no matter what else is going on in the ecosystem, we have this one consistent metric. And we do that with every platform that we work on. Yeah, I think for us at Jukin, we've always been a content-first company, and we always started off with content, and that was acquiring the rights and buying that content. But over time, as the company started growing and started scaling, we really needed to build our technology for us. And so it's a lot bigger today, and we're all around a system that we call Riff, that everybody and every business unit around the company is working off of. And we're collecting a lot of data, a ton of data. We're trying to find different ways to analyze that data, because you're right, there's a lot of noise that you have to cut through and it's hard to get in, you can get really buried into the weeds and it's important to step back and take an overall look and overall view but we're really using technology at the end of, at the end of the day as an internal workflow internal uh, workflow process that can help us enable and program and create and find our content I'm going to move on from technology and get into just the, the power of, of each of your separate companies in influencing the greater public and the responsibilities and kind of ethics that probably go with when really we just began as, as filmmakers, as a tech platform, um, and now all of a sudden we're, we're breaking stories um, and, and finding people that have really powerful um, ways of, of influencing others, obviously. How does how does the culture continue to evolve within when you have that kind of influence now, um, where you have these millions of views and shares, and how tempting is it sometimes to play in maybe sandboxes that otherwise would have been kind of off limits when BuzzFeed was just doing kind of cat videos, um, and now all of a sudden, you're which by the way we have very few cat videos. 
very, I looked the other day because those were my favorite things in the world. But no, I mean that you guys are actually a publisher, and and, and I guess with that, this is a, a secondary. If that is the case, um, I know that Adam, you like to use the word newsroom and this kind of newsroom mentality, um, and our roles as kind of editor in chief for whether they're brands or they're for ourselves. Um, how does that shift, and, and how do you adapt to, to to having that type of role? This question is difficult for for any company working in this space. And as I've described, we have this environment that's not top-down, where the content creators can operate very autonomously. So the so the best way we have to tackle that is uh, through just putting together internal controls and systems where people can rely on each other. We're like a big Slack company, so everyone's available on Slack to get together on an issue and weigh it out. And the way you want to think about it is that anyone in the company, say like someone in the accounting department, when they hear about something breaking that BuzzFeed did and people having reactions, that they feel good and they understand where it came from and what rigor <coughs> went into it. I mean, I don't know the degree to which we are changing or affecting the world, but uh, I will say this just as an interesting tidbit because we are so people-focused. Vimby finds itself often entering into partnerships with brands and with publishers. Um, and I should mention, I'm going to set publishers aside for a second, but we do power several publishers as a white label solution. Um, uh, you know, just they're the publishing arm, but obviously, you know, places like the Daily Beast and Isaiah, which is a huge influencer network that Vimby does their videos. But it is interesting with brands that we oftentimes enter the door, not through the marketing, or the, not through the advertising department, but through the corporate communications department or the you know CSR department or, or public policy department or whatever. Because when you're in those worlds and you're, you're, you're focusing on innovation or investment or workforce treatment and workforce you know, opportunity, um, you wanna find a company that tells stories, human stories, really, really well. And so um, so I don't know that Vimby is, is, is necessarily affecting change uh, in any meaningful the Kleenex, way. The Kleenex campaign, though. Yeah, I mean, we did a, we did a campaign for Kleenex, which is probably the, the thing that we're the mo probably most known for. We did a large campaign for Kleenex that was all about timely gestures of care. They were all very emotional stories, um, all very much in that newsroom mentality of our filmmakers finding these stories, bringing them to us. Um, and every single one of those, not every single one, but the vast majority of those videos has done in excess of 100,000 shares and 5 million views. Uh, we had one of Ad Age's top 10 viral videos of the year. It had like 2.8 million shares on Facebook and I don't even know how many, 70 million organic views or something. Um, and, and it was all about just trying to tell stories that made people, A, feel good, but then secondarily encourage them to go show some gesture of care to their fellow person. It could be really small. So I guess in that way, yeah. Um, it was really, really, but it was all about like every day just trying to find a person and show them a gesture of care, be that a smile or helping them with their groceries or something in some cases much, much larger. Um, and, uh, and that was a very, very successful campaign and, and definitely one that I think um, lifted affinity and sentiment for Kleenex, but also, uh, yeah, I guess made us a little proud to show it to our moms and aunts and whatnot. Um, at Jukin, we actually have a lot of cat videos, um, and I'll own it, and I love it. We, everybody loves cat videos, and that sandbox that we play in, we like to think the, the, the sandbox is actually the beach. 
because the videos that we got are cat videos, but it's also videos that evoke emotion, that are real, that are organic, authentic. It's everything from newsworthy to sports to cringeworthy um, to inspiration. Uh, we have a brand called People Are Awesome, which is called, which is ordinary people doing extraordinary things. It's one of the um, largest brands um, uh, that we have in our portfolio. Uh, we're always thinking about different ways how we can inspire folks, how we can how we can evoke that emotion at the end of the day. So maybe we're not well, we're not changing the world, but I do think we're guaranteed making people laugh or making people cry, and that's something that I think we're really proud of at the end of the day. I do want to make one point that in our business, it's really easy to get caught up in huge numbers, especially when we're talking so much about the data and technology. You know, we might have a video that gets 10 million views in YouTube in 24 hours. So how do you make sure you're making impactful content? So that's why impact is actually a, a core tenant at BuzzFeed. And we'll even go so far as to have weeks where we uh, have theme weeks around certain topics to make sure we're covering that content. And we do things like Mental Health Awareness Week, and we made a video where someone like survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And we celebrate, um, we celebrate videos that have impact just as much as we celebrate videos that have huge views. Um, right before we uh, turn it over for questions, um, I, I was just gonna—I I, didn't—I didn't preface any of this with you guys. But if there is any kind of big news or something, like what's what's the future? What's is there any kind of announcements that you guys want to make about maybe some things that are unexpected that the companies might be doing? Uh, any of your companies might be doing in the near future that we uh, might look forward to. I know I'm getting the most looks on this, which is like, no, 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 um, gentlemen, anything you guys want to? that you're excited about in the future, whether it's the company or just kind of where the space is heading? Well, as um, one thing I'm, I'm really excited about is the recent hire of Damian Navarro as our new president. Um, but I, I, don't have any, I don't have any huge um, announcements, but I will say uh, that I me we mentioned earlier that we started as a publisher. We started as a, uh, a distributor and a storytelling engine. Um, I don't know that we're ever gonna look to become BuzzFeed or Jukin, but I, I do think that in the next year, there's gonna be a concentrated effort for Vimby to get back to that place of being a, of publishing stories. Let me just put it that way. Um, because we have told so many, we're sitting on hours and hours and hours of, of really compelling content from around the country. And I think it's a shame that we're not sharing that. Uh, and so I think that's gonna become a little bit of, more of a focus for us. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, I guess some other ones, but I can't talk about them, so that's it. For me, I'm just super excited about the space. Just being an online video is just so exciting right now. It's changing so quickly. There are so many platforms being launched every single day around the world. It is such an exciting time to be a content producer and a content creator right now. I mean, this it's not going to be like this ever again because there's just so many opportunities for everyone. From an individual in Ohio can upload their video, share it with the world, and get millions of views. I mean, it's never been done in the history of the world right now. So it's really exciting there's a lot of opportunities and you know companies like the companies up here they're going to be the next Viacoms they're going to be the next NBC Universals there's no doubt in my mind in the next 10 years the world of media is changing and the landscape is changing so uh, before we turn it over to questions oh no please Laurie get us oh 
Lori will be our question person. Um, I just want to give a, a quick round of applause for our panelists. Uh, thank you guys so much for your time. And um, Lori has uh, the mic, the hot mic, for anybody that has uh, specific questions. We've got uh, about 10 minutes, so please. When you first started working with a brand who's new to this, what were some of the biggest challenges you had and how did you overcome them, getting them to get on board and understand the rules, the, you know, the game rules? For, for me, um, especially being in user-generated content, was brand safety. It was. It took a very long time to get over that. They didn't. They didn't understand it. They, they wanted really stuff, really premium. Maybe more stuff that's in line with you guys. But for us, it was really hard to get over that hurdle to convince brands that UGC is safe. And for us, when I talk about organic and being authentic, is there's nothing more organic than an everyday person using a product or service that's from UGC. So it did take some time to get over that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think for us, and we are, you know, from a content perspective, we're probably a little more premium um, uh, than, than traditional influencer marketing because we do you know, some higher end work. But um, even so, we're kind of in a middle ground because we're certainly not, you know, 72 and sunny. And so, um, and so I think a lot of times the, the biggest thing for us with brands is, is to that same point, are we going to have a direct line of communication to the creator? Are we gonna have control? And the truth of the matter is, we actually tell them no. They're not gonna have a direct line of communication to the creator, and that's to protect the brand. Because we know, having having done this so many times, they need to funnel everything through Los Angeles at Vimby and allow us to speak to our network, because we speak a language and we know how to communicate if they'll trust us to communicate to our creators, we will deliver on the brief, but they, they don't like the fact that like, if Juliana is directing, I keep going back, it's like a Walmart commercial, they're used to being able to talk to Juliana, and it's a little bit different with Vimby, because what ends up happening is they talk to Vimby and we talk to Juliana, um, and, uh, and that's just to protect them, but that's the biggest challenge, is just like control. Hi, my name is Cammie Kidder and I am a content creator and I'm just so excited to hear everything that you're saying. Um, but for somebody like me who's been sort of working in my own world and getting embedded in a community, which for me is specifically women's sports, how do we get to you? I mean, is it a, a submission through a website? Is it, Do I run up there and give you my card? Like, What's the process to say, hey, I'm here and I have cool stories? Well, it's a little different for us because obviously, you know, if you're trying to get onto a platform, that they can answer that question. But if you're interested in, in being a content creator, where are you located? By okay, um, yeah, <coughs> just say hey afterwards. Okay. <laughs> we, we receive thousands of submissions a day, so we have a website and we have a forum where you can submit your content. We're also out there actively looking for content creators. Yeah, Jukin is really the user-generated content. Um, Place. All of our content creators are full-time employees of BuzzFeed, but we do have excellent programs for bringing people in and, and teaching them how we think about content and different opportunities for um, shorter like residencies on teams that I can tell you about. Hi, I'm Lauren McNamara. I'm a media buyer. 
Um, how do you protect your brands? This is more of a question for Michelle. How do you protect your brands from the advertiser's voice? That's an interesting way of putting the question. I imagine you mean um, it's still feeling like BuzzFeed content? Um, I specifically have like Tasty and Nifty in mind. Obviously, like it's really like what they've crafted with Nifty and um, Tasty. It's really unique. And so how do you preserve that? That's right. So, so all the content that we make on Tasty and Nifty has certain core essential uh, tenets to it, like um, ingredients should be accessible and people should be able to easily make the thing and feel like when they see the content, like we want them to tag their friend and say, let's do this this weekend. Same with Nifty. It should be a project that you see and, and you're like, we can do this this weekend. Um, we've had experience... Uh, partnering with brands and as long as we explain the idea of shareability up front and that all the content we make is focused in this way it, it should follow enough time for one or two more questions Hi, my name is Christina Rath. Thank you guys for this today. Um, obviously, Facebook can be a great tool for making something go uh, viral, but how do you guys kind of plan that you're not relying too much on that to distribute your content? So BuzzFeed puts our content on a number of platforms. Uh, we have been big on YouTube for many years. We were one of the first to natively publish on Facebook when when native video is introduced and we're on Instagram, we're on Snapchat. We treat every platform as an opportunity to get data back and learn about what our audience is looking for. So that prevents us from ever feeling like over committed on one platform. Yeah, I think it's important too to have that diversity. Um, we're also distributed on, on multiple platforms throughout the world. Um, if you look right now, if you rely too much on one platform, if you look at YouTube right now, for example, as advertisers have jumped ship, I'm sure they'll be back. But some businesses that depend so much of, of their, their viewership and monetization is on YouTube, they're in a lot of trouble right now. And it'll be interesting to see how YouTube kind of brings back those advertisers. And I would just quickly say that it, it's impossible to guarantee that something's going to be shared or viewed. And so whether you're looking at yourself in the mirror or talking to a potential partner or brand, you have to manage those expectations. I mean, because, and that's something that we always are very forthright about. I mean, now if we take 10 cracks at it, three or four of them are going to be hits. Um, but it, sometimes it's just, it's just completely, you just can't even account for it sometimes. Um, uh, and then as far as, you know, from a, from a content creation perspective, Diversity is key in terms of distribution, but you know, we look at, if we make a 20 second ver social version of a video, we'll, we'll make a different 20 for Instagram than we will for Twitter. And, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm stating, this is probably elementary to some of you, but, but different things work better on different platforms. And so we think a lot about those, what happens in the first three seconds from a structural standpoint as, as, as editors. Um, you really unfortunately have to, go piece by piece and platform by platform and make sure that what the, the individual asset is is optimized for the distribution you know and that's uh, sorry great point about that you know when Facebook first introduced native video 
uh, it was autoplay and most people didn't have the audio on. So if you only followed that trend, you would stop making influencer content, you would stop making experiential driven, personality based content. And as a business, you want to be making as much content as your audience is looking for. So that's, that's a great point about the different content working on different platforms. Okay, last question. On, the, on brand partnerships, so with your brand partnerships, is it the um, brand is coming in to sponsor content that's already been created, or is it that the brand is coming in to help uh, or hire for production of content? How does that work? Uh, for BuzzFeed, we do a lot of uh, native advertising with brands, and we also have other opportunities where they can come in and sponsor existing content. Uh, both, both are available. Yeah, we do customize uh, content that's already available, content that we're already programming. We're, I mean, we're pretty flexible and pretty, pretty nimble at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, for us, it's 99.9% .9 of the time we've had a discussion with a brand before we embark on a branded project, and they're they're involved. It's collaborative. Um, sometimes it's just sponsorship of, of content, um, a series, and they're just sort of tacked on there, brought to you by, and other times it's more of a, like a true integration. But because we're not a publisher, um, it, we're generally creating stuff for them. So I think that's it for today. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Thank you again for coming, and uh, thanks to our panel again for sharing such uh, awesome Thank stories. You. Thank you. We'll be um, continuing a fabulous day of panels on influencer content. At uh, 1 o'clock, we have a panel on how brands are working with Snapchat. And if you enjoyed this session, Jeremy, raise your hand. Give your business card to Jeremy. I will forward you all the links for all of this week's podcasts and Facebook video. Everything is being captured and archived and being distributed through influencer channels. So ladies and gentlemen, stick around more at the Advanced Advertising Pavilion. And a big hand for Damon Navarro and the panel, everybody. Yay!